Well, we welcome all of you who are joining us online as well as those of you who are meeting here at Central Campus, along with others of you meeting at one of our other campuses in Airdrie with Pastor Travis and his team uh, in Bridgeland with Pastor Lawrence and his team in Bearspaw with Pastor Mike and his team and South Calgary with Pastor Kevin and his team. I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans, the 13th chapter, as we continue our study in this life-changing book. And I want to begin by asking you a question. If you knew that Jesus was coming back in one year, and assuming you still had to work to pay the bills and to eat, would you make any changes to the way that you're living your life? Would you make any changes to your priorities, to your schedule? Well, this is the focus of the scripture passage we're looking at today. Paul challenges us to live with a sense of urgency, to realize that Christ may come back at any moment or that we could die at any moment and therefore that we make the most of the time that God gives us. And so if you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand and join me in reading the scripture passage we're looking at today. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Let us pray. Again, Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us now to focus upon it, to focus upon you. We ask that you would remove distractions from our thoughts. And Lord, you would prepare us to receive. Uh, you would humble us to receive what you have in mind for us. And Lord, that you would again give us the will and the courage to be who you want us to be and to do what you want us to do. For I pray it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, in my role as pastor, I'm often invited to celebrate the high points in people's lives, like their baptism, their wedding, uh, the dedication of their children to God, and so forth. At the same time, I'm also asked to walk with people during the lowest seasons of their life. Some time ago, a man 
in his mid-40s, asked to speak to me. After some small talk, he said, Pastor, I have cancer. And my doctor tells me I don't have very long to live. And the reason I wanted to meet with you is to ask whether you would be open to just meeting with me on occasion. And should the Lord choose to call me home, that you would do my funeral. Now, this is not the first time that I have been asked to do something like this. Over the years, I have walked with numerous individuals and families who suddenly found themselves walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And even though I'm not able to do this as much as I once did, each time I do, my walk with God is strengthened and my life is enriched. And I say that because as I listen and as I walk with these people, I'm reminded of how short life is, that this world is not our home, that we're just passing through, and that at the end of the day, the only thing we're going to be able to take with us into the next life is our friendship with God and people. Those who know and love Jesus, and in some cases, that we introduced to Jesus. Everything else will burn up. It will rust out. It will wear out. Or it'll just plain rot. Well, the passage that we just read together, the Apostle Paul challenges us to wake up spiritually and not give our lives to chasing after temporary things, which will mean little or nothing to us when it's all said and done. Paul essentially says, if you're a Christian, if you've been a recipient of the love and the grace of God, then the only way to glorify God is through a life that is well lived. And so it's with this sense of urgency that Paul challenges us to glorify God by living out some of the following priorities. And the first one is pay your bills. And you say, whoa, I didn't see that one coming. Well, look at verse 7 and 8. It says this, give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe them taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And then he sums it up in verse 8 by saying, let no debt remain outstanding. Now, Paul is not teaching here that you should never borrow money the way that some people believe. In fact, the Bible as a whole certainly allows for the concept of borrowing money. In Matthew 5, verse 42, Jesus himself said, Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. When Paul says here, let no debt remain outstanding, he's really saying, be sure to pay your bills. Someone once said, always borrow from a pessimist because they're already assuming you won't pay them back. <laughs> well, that's a nice thought, but don't count on it. Paul says, pay your bills. In other words, don't do what a lot of people do these days, and that is to get overextended in debt. Whatever debt we have, 
should be manageable, and we should be able to pay it on time. So why does Paul insist this be such a high priority in our lives? Because nothing will sidetrack you more from cultivating your relationship with God and from investing your life in things that are going to really matter than debt. In Matthew 6, Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, money represents the things of this world. And so what Jesus is saying here, he's identifying one of our greatest struggles in life. And that is, will I worship God with my life or will I worship the things he created, the temporary things of life? And one of the litmus tests that we are worshiping money and the attainment of things is the temptation to go into unreasonable amount of debt. Debt has the capacity to drag you down and enslave you. The deeper you go into debt, the more you will be tempted to worry and have less freedom to stop and pray, less freedom to serve other people, less freedom to be generous. Did you know that the greatest cause of marital breakdown is finance and in particular debt? And that's so unfortunate because we're allowing the temporary things of life and our obsession with obtaining them destroy not only our inner peace, but also damage our relationship with God and with others that we care about. Now, to be clear, I know sometimes the economy can go sideways and a person can lose their job or business can lose its customer base leaving people with a lot of debt, perhaps even having to face bankruptcy. However, often when people find themselves in significant debt, it is because they want more than they can afford to pay. For example, even though purchasing a home is usually a good investment, many people tend to buy a home that they can't afford. I remember a number of years ago talking to one of my neighbors, and he mentioned that a number of his friends had bought homes that were far too expensive for them to manage financially. And so for years now, he said, they've had almost no furniture in their house because they can't really afford it, and both husband and wife have to work full-time and even part-time in some instances, to pay for this fantastic house which they are never home to enjoy. I mean, who needs that? And of course, one of the biggest traps in our consumer culture is credit cards. If you use credit cards only for the convenience and pay the full amount at the end of each month, well, then that's acceptable. 
But if you use them to borrow on time, you are headed for trouble paying 18 to 21% of interest on whatever it is you fail to pay. And make no mistake, even if you pay off your credit card balance at the end of each month, research has shown that people who use credit cards will spend on average 30% more than people who use checks or cash or interact. Folks, I challenge you to live within your means. Commit to a budget. Say no to purchases you don't need. Avoid impulse buying. Rather than strolling through a mall or surfing on eBay or Amazon to somehow soothe your sore soul, use that time to read a good book or to exercise or to serve others as unto the Lord. Determine to live simply. And might I just say, be okay with living simply. Don't live to compare what you have with what other people have. Be okay with living simply so that you can be generous with those who are simply trying to live or support ministries that are dedicated to helping others in need. Paul says, let no debt remain outstanding. And so first of all, pay your bills. Secondly, love others. Verse 8 again, let no, doubt, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Ever notice that when you see a person that you owe money to, you immediately remember, oh yeah, I have to pay that person back. Well, Paul says here, whenever you meet someone, remind yourself that you owe them love. The love you yourself have received from God. In other words, we are never done loving others. Love is the Christian way of life. And it's to be extended to everyone. Even as God extends his love to us. Now it's easy to love those who are likable. Enjoyable to be around. You know, who like you and hug you and who are a lot like you. It's harder to love people who have different personalities or different backgrounds or different beliefs than you do or different lifestyles than you do. But regardless of whether we like them or not or agree with them or not, we are called upon to love them which means with God's help, we seek to treat them as if we did like them. In light of Jesus' love for us, in light of Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross, Paul says, we owe others love. We owe them courtesy, kindness, patience, understanding, and gentleness. 
In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul writes this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Now, to value others above yourself is to consider others more important than yourself. So how do you know that you are loved by someone? Well, you feel important to them. And they put your interests ahead of themselves. Now make no mistake, you can't love others like this uh, in your own strength. You can't love in a Christ-like way unless you have the love of God within you. Years ago, I was called to a home of a family that had become totally unraveled. Everyone was blaming everyone else. And after listening to them yell and accuse each other, I called for a timeout. Among other things that I said, I said, you'll never be at peace with one another until you each make your peace with God. And the father looked at me and he said, pardon me, but why do we have to bring God into this? And I said, because after listening to all of you, it's clear to me that you don't know what real love is, how to give it, or even how to receive it. The Bible says that we love because he first loved us and he showed us how to love. Without God, we wouldn't even know what love is. 1 John 4, 7 says, Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This passage tells us that as long as you don't know God and understand how he loves you, you really won't know how to genuinely love someone else. In other words, you can't give what you don't have. The most powerful thing that you can do to build love into your life, your marriage, your family, your friendships, and with your neighbors is to be a friend of God who is the author of love. You see, there is a difference between human love and God's love. Human love depends on the person who is loved. You do good to those who do good to you. Human love says, as long as you treat me nice, well, then I will treat you nice as well. Now, is there anything wrong with human love? Well, not really. The problem is it's temporary. It doesn't last. As soon as one person drops the ball and doesn't love us back the way we think they should, or as soon as circumstances change, 
then human love begins to fade. Dave Rover was a soldier in Vietnam. One day he pulled the pin on a grenade, raised it up to throw it, and the faulty grenade went off prematurely in his hand. Somehow he survived the experience. Much of the skin on his right side of his body was blown off. The right side of his face was so badly deformed that he himself says he looks rather grotesque. Anyways, Dave says while he was lying there in the hospital recovering from his wounds, there was a man in the bed next to him who was recovering from a similar accident. That man's wife walked in, took one look at him, took off her wedding ring, and said, sorry, I can't deal with this, and walked out of his life for good. Dave says, when my wife walked in for the first time to see me, I said to her, honey, I don't expect you to have to deal with this. And he says, she reached down, kissed my burnt lips, and said, honey, why would I do that? You were never that good looking to begin with. <laughs> Dave says, our marriage survived because it didn't begin in the back seat of a car. It began in the front row of a church. He says, our marriage survived because both of us have experienced God's amazing love and grace in our lives. A love and a grace we didn't deserve. But a love that Jesus extended to us anyways. A love that we in turn chose to extend to each other. That's godly love. You see, human love says, as long as I can be proud of you, as long as you're beautiful, as long as you treat me well, well, I can love you. But if you change, then my love for you changes. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you as a Christian? Even sinners, I mean, even evil people, Love those who love them. True love is a decision to love, a commitment to love, regardless of whether the other person feels more like an enemy than a friend or loves me back or not. Divine love says, I may not need this, but you do. And I put your needs and your desires ahead of my own. You see, that's what Jesus did for you and for me. And it's difficult to do that. But that's what God calls us to. Paul says it's this kind of love upon which the law or the Ten Commandments are built. Look at verse 9. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. 
Paul says the ultimate fulfillment of the law or the ultimate expression of the law is the love of people. The Ten Commandments are God's guidelines in two ways. First of all, the first four or five focus on how we're to love God. And the remaining commandments focus on how we're to love others. The law says this about loving your neighbor. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet. Therefore, if you love your neighbor, as Christ calls you to, you're not going to steal your neighbor's car or his favorite garden tool. You're not going to uh, um, have an affair with your neighbor's spouse. You're not going to murder your neighbor's reputation. Neither are you going to murder your neighbor's troublesome dog, yapping dog, barking dog, or troublesome cat. No. And you're not going to covet your neighbor's house or cottage by the lake. However, divine love goes further than the law. It goes further than just not injuring your neighbor. Love seeks to do good to your neighbor, to reach out to him, to serve him, help him, and to be generous with him. This is what is so unique in the Christian faith. Divine love seeks to do for others what you would want others to do for you. And yet, as I've already said, such love can only be found through Jesus. We must first receive God's love and grace ourselves or we'll have nothing to give. But if we receive God's love and become channels of that love to other people, we can walk in the assurance that we are fulfilling, and please hear this, we are fulfilling the highest purpose of God in our daily lives. 1 Corinthians 13 says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels and have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecies and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now, hear what I'm about to say. What that passage is saying is I may not accomplish anything of great significance in this life and in the eyes of others. But if I genuinely love God and other people, God considers me a success. On the other hand, I may achieve amazing, great things in the eyes of others, 
But if I fail to love God and others, then in the eyes of God, I gain nothing. The greatest thing you can give your life to is to Jesus and to live and to love like Jesus. And so if you want to glorify God through a well-lived life, pay your bills, love others, and then thirdly, wake up spiritually. Look at verse 11. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Paul writes that we need to love like this because time is running out and people need the Lord. Even if Jesus doesn't return for another hundred years, time is still of the essence because we have no guarantee that we will still be alive tomorrow, much less a year from now. And so it's time to wake up from our spiritual slumber. And not only to ask Jesus to show us all of the opportunities around us in which we can extend godly love to others, but to do what it is he's calling us to do. You know, in the second century, a theologian by the name of Irenaeus, he said, God is glorified when we are fully alive. And by that he meant when we refuse to procrastinate, when we refuse to settle for mediocrity, but instead cultivate a close relationship with Jesus and live all out for him. And so love God and others with everything you have. Don't be spiritually lethargic or just go through the motions of your faith. That, by the way, is called being religious. Don't do that, but make the most of every opportunity by pouring your life into loving God and others because at the end of your life, you're going to realize that it's the only thing that matters and it's the only thing that's going to last. And then fourthly, a a well-lived life also includes putting off deeds of darkness. Look at verse 12 and 13. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension, and jealousy. And what he's saying is that there are some things that are incompatible with love, a godly love. You can't do these things and love at the same time. For example, some people live for good times. Their motto is eat, drink, and party like crazy because tomorrow we die. That is the theme of our culture, if I might add. Paul refers to it as carousing and drunkenness. 
Things you plan again and again for your own pleasure and dopamine hits, including parties, watching Netflix, Amazon Prime, scrolling through Instagram ad nauseum. You can't love others. You can't give priority to the mission God's called us to if you're spending the majority of your time pursuing pleasure. Now, other people live for sex. Our society is saturated, drunken with sex. People's identity <coughs> is based on sex, and for most of them, sex is the only thing in life worth pursuing. I remember many years ago having a conversation with a young man who told me flat out, as far as he was concerned, there was only one God worth giving your life to, and it's sex. I said to him, so tell me what happens in 30 to 40 years when that God doesn't satisfy you anymore. And he said, I really don't care. That's what I'm living for. Before he left, I said to him, mark my word, your God is not going to come through for you. You won't find any real satisfaction or peace until you find your satisfaction in God. Well, many years later, this man approached me after a service again. He looked like he'd aged 30 years. His eyes were hollow, he was emaciated, and I could tell he had, he'd been drinking. After reminding me of who he was, he looked me in the eyes and he said, well, you were right. And he went on to tell me the heartbreaking story of what his life was like from the last time that we talked, and at the end, he said, Pastor, I've not only heard, hurt a lot of people, but I am the loneliest and the most unhappy person on the planet. Sooner or later, every person who's on this kind of trajectory discovers you cannot love others the way that God wants us to and live for sex at the same time you will not only hurt and possibly even destroy others, but you will also hurt and possibly destroy yourself. Some people live for pleasure and sex. Other people live for power and position. Every part of their life is pointed in that direction. On the way there, they will step on whoever they need to step on, they will manipulate people, they will slander people, they will deceive people, they will create dissension between people, whatever it takes to get what it is that they're after. They have this driving need to be the best, to be seen as the best, to be the smartest, to be the richest, to be the wisest, to be the most popular and will stew with jealousy and envy if someone is a step ahead of them in some way or has climbed a rung or two higher than them. But then they lose the election or they fail to get the promotion or someone calls them out and exposes them for the strife, the division, the damage to reputations that they have caused and how much more peaceful it is at the office 
or more peaceful it is at the group when they're not around. And suddenly their life crumbles and the thing that they gave their life to mocks them. You see, when you measure what it is you're going to give your life to, don't measure it in the flesh of your youth or the anticipation of your 20s or 30s. No. Stand by the side of your grave and from that vantage point, look back to today and ask yourself, is it worth my life to get what it is I'm after when I reach my final day? Is it worth chasing after these deeds of darkness? Paul says, see it for what it is. You're wasting your life on that which will not only deeply disappoint you, but it will not last. And so if you want to glorify God through a well-lived life, pay your bills, love others, wake up spiritually, put aside deeds of darkness, and finally, put on Jesus. Look at verse 14. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul is saying in the same way that you put on clothes every day and assume that they won't suddenly disappear on you, but will remain with you and go wherever it is you go, so intentionally put on Jesus every day inviting him to do your day with you. Believe that he is with you and that he will not only live his life through you, but when you ask him, he will help you, he will empower you, and he will lead you to do his will. He is crazy about you and he wants to transform your world through you. But in the words of Paul, the time to introduce people to Jesus is running out. And so, let me ask you, what changes in your life is God calling you to make so that you can love others as the Lord loves you and introduce them to Jesus? You know, in ancient Rome, during the life of Paul, if a couple didn't want a baby, they would abandon that child. And they would put it on the rocks near the ocean or in a field or in the nearby hills and leaving it to nature to determine the child's fate. As people became Christ followers, their worldview changed dramatically. And they began to realize that God created every life with dignity and purpose. And so as a result, the thought of leaving infants to die was simply unthinkable. They couldn't close their blinds to this reality. And with the cruel and the sadistic Nero as emperor, they knew they couldn't change the law or the behaviors of all of Rome. And so they did the only thing that they could do 
And that was to take those infants home and raise and love them as their own. And you see, friends, that is the power of the kind of life that glorifies God and points people to Jesus and the love of his church. Now, many of you have loved like this. You have loved. You've taken in orphans. You have loved and cared for and discipled children, youth, adults, people with special needs. You have loved and reached out and provided food, clothing, and prayer to the hurting, the working poor, the new Canadians that are here in our city. You have come alongside the lonely. You have given hope to the despairing through Jesus Christ. You have prayed for and responded to the needs of those in your ministry group or in your community group or people at work or in your neighborhood. Some of you have even given one of your organs or part of an organ to save the life of someone. There are so many examples that I could give, but whether I've mentioned it or not, whether I'm aware of it or not is not the issue. I just want you never to forget that God knows, that God sees, and God will reward you for loving this way. This is what the Christian faith is all about. This is what attracts people to our Lord and to his church. But in closing, if you have been hesitant, if you have been hesitant to step out of your comfort zone and to begin to live and to love like Jesus, the scriptures remind us that all we ever get from the day of our birth to life on the other side in eternity is one brief era, one shining season to live all out for Christ. And then it's over. And church, we, we must understand this. This is our time. This is my one shining season. And this is your one shining season. Christ wants to live his life of love through you and through me. To make an eternal difference through us and our families, our churches and our communities. And so my challenge to you is, please don't pull back, don't shrink back, don't hesitate, don't procrastinate, but lean in and take hold of your one shining season to the glory of God. As Paul challenges us in 1 Corinthians 15, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Oh, may it be so. To the glory of God, for the sake of our world that needs 
the Jesus that we know and love. Would you please bow your heads and close your eyes? And just take the next few moments to ask, Lord, what are you saying to me? And Lord, what do you want me to do about it?